0: A young gentleman had entered a room where we were treating his grandfather. He couldn't cope with that at all and started smashing, breaking the house. Went outside, smashed a glass house with a big baseball bat. So obviously the the next thing is, well, is he going to get us now? You know. So, but that was his grief and his way of dealing with the situation that he was confronted with. So it's not always alcohol and drugs.
1: Hello and welcome to our podcast. We will talk about violence against paramedics and why it has to stop. Our names are Robert Peters, Thomas Giorgescu and Cornelie van Dalen, and we are students at the University of Leiden. Rushing towards places, providing the first care and saving lives every day. That is what ambulance workers chose to do as their job. Those ambulance workers are there to save your fathers, your mothers, your children and your friends and we must be thankful for them. However, not everyone is grateful and the numbers of violent assaults against ambulance staff are rising. There are not many paramedics that never had to deal with physical or verbal violence whilst doing their job. They have to deal with aggressive drunk people with kicking, beating and threats to kill them or their family. This podcast will provide you with the information about the factors that lead to the violence and if it can be predicted. We will elaborate on the psychological consequences of violence and we will discuss if it can be monitored or even prevented. Spoiler alert. We speak with educator and researcher John Ambrose from the Liverpool John Moores University who worked in the ambulance service for almost 33 years to hear about his experience with violence. We also talk with David Blowers, an advanced paramedic who is responsible for a team of 7 senior paramedics team leaders at the Northwest Ambulance Service in the UK. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Keep in mind, our podcast is meant to raise awareness about violence against paramedics. Thomas, can you tell us more about the factors that lead to violence against paramedics?
2: Uh, Yes, thank you, Cornelie. Indeed, I've studied the factors that lead to violence against paramedics uh, and also the signs that you should be looking for uh, when trying to predict such events before they occur. So, initially, like we all wanted to, the plan was to focus on the Netherlands only. But after doing some research, I realized that there is little literature covering this issue, which forced all of us to change to Northwestern Europe. So in the end, I used sources only from two countries, the Netherlands and Sweden. But considering the scale of the project and the time we were given, I believe we did a a great job with our research. Uh, And also, we added the first-hand experience of two paramedics from the UK through our interviews. Uh, As part of our literature reviews, we had to fill in a data extraction sheet, which is what I'll use now to come up with, uh, with all the data. So to start with, the victims in all of my articles were, of course, ambulance personnel. And on top of that, I also came up with the usual characteristics of the perpetrators and also the risk factor or the violence triggers as they are also called. To this I wanted to add predictors of violent occurrences, but only one article really covered this topic. So I asked for further details on this issue in the interviews, since I believe this would be a very important research topic in the context of training paramedics, or preparing them to deal with violent people without the use of weapons.
3: Ah, Okay, but what are the common characteristics of the perpetrators?
2: When we first started working on this project i was thinking about this issue of paramedics getting attacked whether it's verbally or physically and i just didn't really understand how this could actually be an issue surely if you're talking about aid workers in areas of conflict that's a different issue but where there is peace it just sounded really weird to me at the same time i've never been in a position to call for an ambulance and have to wait for its arrival and i'm very grateful for that and that's most likely why I didn't understand this issue, as we'll find out a bit later. So, we have some common perpetrators, named in my articles and also in the two interviews, and they are the victims themselves, which still sounds quite crazy, their relatives or friends, and also bystanders. Why would friends or bystanders suddenly attack paramedics, we'll understand when talking about the violence triggers, which is my my central theme. So rather nicely for my part of research, my findings were later confirmed in the interviews as we're about to hear.
0: Often you'll get, quite often for for, for a death or somebody that's um, that needs resuscitation, perhaps, the people that are already there are usually quite calm. It's the people that arrive later. So we'll call the family and the family and neighbors arrive uh, and they would, um, possibly uh, become more upset than the people who are already there. It's, it's, it's a strange way that the mind works, isn't it? That can be challenging sometimes. Um, so I've been to a few cases like that where there's been knives involved uh, and weapons. Um, family situations generally and occasions, uh, funerals, wakes, Christmas, New Year you know all those celebrations when families get together can be a trigger uh, as you mentioned uh, so it's the perceptions that people have um and that's linked to the concerns for family members for family members friends etc so if you imagine going to all these cases over and over again and we're confronted by family members who are affecting the care of their particular family member um that can become almost irritating sometimes, you think, we well, just go away and leave us to do what, what we have to
2: do. So, as you can see, it's friends, relatives, bystanders, sometimes even the victims themselves that attack the people that are there to save lives. How crazy does that sound? But there is some reason behind these crazy moments.
3: I suppose the reasons for the crazy moments are those factors that lead to violence. So, what have you found out from this point of view?
2: Yeah, so there are two main violence triggers mentioned in almost uh, all of the seven articles I studied, and also in both interviews, but I will start with some of the more unique reasons that I've come across. For example, the preconceived notion about how paramedics are supposed to act is mentioned once and compared quite nicely to people watching American movies like Baywatch and getting a false idea about how an ambulance crew works. Also, access to firearms and people running away from the police is a mentioned trigger. Presumably, that person injures itself while running away from the cops and is also armed, but still calls for an ambulance and the tensions are high in such an encounter, which could lead to an altercation. And I'd also like to mention a cause included in three of the seven articles, but not mentioned in any of the two interviews, which is immigrant families. It could be in the form of a cultural or language barrier, or the mistrust that minority patients could have in the in the emergency services and whether they care about their well-being. They could believe that since they are migrants, the paramedics won't be very interested in saving them, which results in a suspicious and violent attitude even before the ambulance arrives. But the two main violence triggers are the consumption of alcohol and drugs, especially when combined with a crowd, and the feelings associated with the moment you're waiting for an ambulance. And that could be pain, impatience, fear, grief, or frustration. And I'll leave it to John to better explain those two factors.
0: So the common triggers I've observed, I I suppose um, I've mentioned a few already in that brief introduction. Um, You could say that uh, when we go to situations involving death, um, bereavement, it's people's response to that. So people will respond, obviously, in a variety of ways. Some um, will deal with it really well and um, be quite quiet and calm. Uh, others are obviously upset for whatever the situation is. Um, and as I said before, <clears throat> some people react aggressively because they can't cope with the particular situation they found themselves in, where you know someone they love has died or potentially going to die uh, and we're in their house treating this particular person in this confined space and their reaction um is or can be inappropriate um when they look back on it we've had um triggers obviously the the the, um, the one that everybody thinks is alcohol so alcohol yeah. um drugs when we go to cases involving um um, alcohol and drugs It might be nothing to do with those for the actual case it could be a diabetic for example it just happens that there's a lot of people who've had a, 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 a alcohol uh, around the scene uh, they can be a, a particular that can be a particular trigger so if you've got uh, a crowd of people who are at the scene might not even know the patient have nothing to do with them you might have been to nightclubs yourself where somebody's collapsed and you think you know try and yeah. care for them etc but you'll get people who who Busy bodies, as we call them, um, who'll come in and try and um, create a fuss, should we say? Um, and, and they might have been waiting for an ambulance for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and they become agitated about that, and there's violence even before we've um, got out the ambulance.
1: Finally, uh, you said something about predicting such incidents. What did you come up with regarding this?
2: Out of all my articles, only one focused on the prediction of violent events, and it says that in the title too, which is Predictors of Workplace Violence Among Ambulance Personnel A Longitudinal Study. Interestingly, this article focuses on what the paramedics might be doing wrong, and could change themselves, instead of the people that assault them. There are two such risk factors mentioned. Paramedics that are uncompromising towards patients, so a paramedic that can't accept the violent behaviour of somebody and acts too aggressively himself instead of trying to defuse the situation in a more diplomatic manner. And the second one would be paramedics that have issues with their superiors, so let's say disgruntled employees, that probably don't enjoy going to work anymore and don't really care about the consequences of their actions. At the same time, you could study the triggers that have been mentioned already in order to work out how to predict such a tricky situation. And once again, we will play you what John had to say about this topic.
0: Well, I, th- I think, again, just repeating what you said before, it's it's a bit like, well, okay, we're going to a case where alcohol and drugs are involved and we'll be given that information. Sometimes we aren't uh, and, and, and we're given something like patient's got a headache and we get there and there's a whole bank of chaos, uh, uh, like a domestic or something like that, and all of a sudden you're in the living room of this house where a domestic's going on and you weren't given any warning. Um, but if you do get warning, it'll be, well, there's alcohol involved, there's drugs involved. If it's a, a case where it's involving um, grief of any nature, um, you would be on high alert and have a, a high index of suspicion that this could potentially go one way or the other. So you have to um, almost predict it and get, get in there early to to stop that happening. Um, again, any trauma that we go to, particularly in the public environment, that can be a trigger—not trigger, uh, trigger sorry—a predictor.
2: Right. I hope this sets up the rest of this podcast nicely. And following me, it's, it's Robert, and the psychological impact that workplace violence has on paramedics.
3: Yeah. Thank you, Doma. And uh, when we study the psychological consequences of violence against paramedics we see several trends. It is, for example, widely argued that verbal and physical violence against ambulance personnel affects their psychological and emotional well-being. First of all, I must tell you up front that, due to the time reasons, in this podcast I will only briefly discuss the development of post-traumatic symptoms and limit my focus on burnouts. But how have they measured this, I hear you asking? Well, I want to highlight one measurement tool that is particularly interesting. That is the Maslach Burnout Inventory. And as you might expect by the name, it was constructed by Susan E. Jackson and Christina Maslach. And it consists of 22 items and uses five skills. And from those five skills, I want to elaborate on three of them, which are also the three components of a burnout. And the first is emotional exhaustion, which measures someone's feelings of being emotionally overextended and exhausted at work. And the second skill is depersonalization, this measures a distant or indifferent attitude towards work. And depersonalization manifests as uh, negative, callous, and cynical behaviors, or for instance, interacting with colleagues or patients in an impersonal manner. The third skill is personal accomplishment, which measures feelings of competence and successful achievement in one's work with people. Uh, When scores are low on the personal accomplishment skill, we see there is the tendency to negatively evaluate the worth of one's work, feeling insufficient in regard to the ability to perform one's job, and a generalized poor professional self-esteem.
2: Could you give us an illustration of some of the results you found?
3: Yes, of course. A particularly representative study was conducted in Spain in 2015. This study evaluates the most extensive pre-hospital emergency service in Europe, and one of the most important uh, worldwide, and can therefore be taken as an excellent indicator of the problem existing in this sector. Well, first of all, they use the Maslach Burnout Inventory, as you just told you about, and besides that, they also use the uh, General Health Questionnaire, which is supposed to measure different aspects of mental health. It aims to detect mild psychiatric disorders like, for instance, insomnia, anxiety, and severe depression. Okay, so try to keep this in mind, because we will see this back in the results. When we look at the burnout syndrome, we see that the study has found that professionals who had been exposed to physical violence presented a significantly higher percentage of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization than those who had not been subjected to any aggression. And similarly, uh, professionals who had suffered verbal aggression presented a significantly higher percentage of depersonalization than those who had not suffered any aggression.
1: And what about personal accomplishment? That is also a component of a burnout, right?
3: Yes, you were right. Uh, This study however did not find any significant differences in personal accomplishment levels, depending on whether these professionals had been subjected to aggression or on the type of violence that was experienced. This is remarkable because this differs from previous studies. Thereby, I must say that those studies are studies about violence against nurses and emergency department workers. A possible explanation is that professionals working in pre-hospital emergency care, in other words, ambulance officers, are highly motivated and, in spite of the aggression, still feel that their potential is realized.
2: You also mentioned the general health questionnaire before. Did that give any results worth mentioning?
3: Well, couldn't you ask. Actually, there were only significant differences on the anxiety subscale. We see that paramedics who have experienced physical violence scored higher in contrast to those who had not experienced any aggression. Those that have experienced verbal violence do also score higher on the anxiety subscale, but not as high as those who have been subject to physical violence. So, to conclude, they found that the healthcare professionals who had been exposed to physical and verbal violence, presented a significantly higher percentage of anxiety, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization and burnout syndrome compared with those who had not been subjected to any aggression. Is
2: it true that female paramedics experience more psychological strain after being exposed to violence?
3: Well, there is a Turkish study that mentions that burnout scores appeared higher for female respondents, but other studies conclude there is no significant difference between male and female paramedics. So I wouldn't draw that conclusion per se. What we can say, however, is that we see a difference in sub skills after being exposed to violence more frequently. Well, let me explain that. We will again use the example of the study performed in Spain. Sadly, they could not establish the influence of frequent physical violence. But regarding verbal violence, a higher percentage of professionals who were more frequently victimized that is more than five times, reported high levels of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. And additionally, a higher percentage of professionals scored high on the anxiety scale we talked about earlier. And besides the frequency, also severity seems to play a role. Research has namely also shown that more severe experiences of violence lead to more post-traumatic symptoms among ambulance personnel. David Blowers recognized this very much, And he said the following.
4: The thing is, is that it's like everything. Like I said before, it doesn't tend to be the one assault or the one bad car accident you go to. It's all these factors build up together, and that's when we find staff end up getting stressed and burnt out and suffering from mental health and psychological problems is when lots of little things build up. And my experience, personally, I've found that is, you know, going to lots of bad things or or, or being ver- verbally assaulted a number of times, that does ramp up and that's when you find it more difficult to manage. But like anything, like we said before, with violence is it's best to recognise when you're getting stressed out and having that support in there, even for the low level stuff. You know, so if you're just feeling a bit stressed rather than massively Stressed, it's really useful to have that low-level support there because it might stop things building up and building up and you end up having to have time off sick because of psychological issues.
1: Okay, you've made clear that psychological consequences of violence against ambulance workers are real and that one can develop a burnout as a result of it. Is there enough psychological and emotional support for ambulance workers?
3: Yeah, that's the thing. We don't read a lot about that. On the contrary, we see that only a very small percentage of healthcare professionals report having received psychological help. And many studies report a lack of available support. And it is not surprising then that an increased availability of psychological support and more reporting possibilities are requested to create a culture in which ambulance officers can freely talk about their experiences in order to limit or bring down psychological harm. Luckily, the situation in the UK has improved over the years. And I also discovered this after asking John.
0: From my experience, um, certainly in the UK, support was lacking 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. It was there, but it was more that people were expected just to get on with it. You might have read a lot about black humour and the way we cope with things and you just get on with it, you know. Um, so there's a lot of studies on that, um, but I think for the UK in the last, particularly the last five years, um, as the College of Paramedics has, has built up and become more, um, more of a voice in the UK, I think there's a better way that Ambulance Services and the College of Paramedics and the Health and Care Professions Council, which is our registration body, support each other uh, so within uh, I'll talk about my ambulance service which is northwest ambulance service uh, there's a really good structure now so they really identify the health and well-being of the staff and look after that and manage um, um, uh, how 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 their staff cope with um, these incidents and other incidents you know it doesn't have to be violence or stress it just could be just just health and well-being generally
3: it may be clear that Any psychological intervention will not be effective unless it is accompanied by other interventions at the community level and the organisational level. Cornelie, could you please tell us more about this?
1: Yes, thank you, Robert. So, in the previous part, it became clear where this violence comes from and what the psychological consequences are for the ambulance workers. But the next question is, how can we try to reduce and monitor and maybe even prevent an event like this from happening?
0: Sometimes we can get dragged into those situations. So if we stand off, um, waiting for the police to go in uh, around the corner from a, an incident. Sometimes, and I can think of one in particular from years and years ago. Um, it, it involved a samurai sword. Uh, but uh, we were called by this person, and then they, um, somebody, ran the corner had seen us and sort of almost dragged us to this incident. Uh, so we were almost pulled into this incident where we didn't want to go because the general public were there, and their expectation was that, well, you're the ambulance service, come and treat this patient. And we're thinking, well, there's knives involved, and it's a very big knife, so <laughs> should we really? So uh, um, so we did get involved in that, but we, we dealt with it uh, professionally.
3: Are there specific things that we can do to improve the safety of ambulance personnel?
1: Unfortunately, not that much. There are only a few little things that you can do to provide this, but always try to treat the ambulance personnel the way they should be treated. Always keep in mind that they are there to try and save a life, even if it is not working out exactly the way you want it to work out. They are also just human, and sometimes there is just nothing more they can do about the situation. It can also be really helpful to give an advanced warning When you know that a patient might be drunk, high or has a violent background. And if you are a first responder and you know more about the situation, always make sure that you tell the ambulance crew everything they need to know. Not just what happened, but also who they are dealing with. Luckily, there are solutions to reduce, prevent or monitor the violence in some ways and to improve the safety of the ambulance personnel. The first one that I want to mention is training, focused on different elements. Preferably, these trainings are given during the education because it would lower the chances that new ambulance workers suffer from large, violent situations and the consequences of them. For the ambulance workers that are already in the field, training lessons can be given afterwards as well. It is just really important that the trainings are of good quality and that there is some sort of refreshment training after 10 years to keep the effectiveness of it.
2: Now, what is actually included in these trainings? What are the elements?
1: There are actually a lot of different trainings that can be given. And the first one is self-defence classes. And there are actually ambulance services that already offer these kind of trainings. But there are different kind of self-defence classes, so everyone can choose the best option for themselves, if that is karate or krav Maga. Uh, So that makes this solution even better. Uh, besides the actual improvement of self-defence techniques, like blocking punches, it just gives a great confidence boost as well. Another training that might be really helpful is the improvement of communication skills. Ambulance workers have to communicate with dispatchers, but they also need to know how their communication can effectively calm the patients and family members down. This would come in handy as a prevention tool, whilst the self-defense is used when there's already violence going on. Some also say that carrying self-defense weapons like pepper spray or even a gun would give a great confidence boost, but the critique is that it goes against their primary goal of helping people. Therefore, this option has never been executed at all. However, what does John Ambrose think of the possession of self-defense tools?
0: I would disagree. I mean, it depends on where you look in Europe, obviously. You're looking at Europe, aren't you, rather than worldwide. Uh, It depends where you look worldwide, I suppose.